I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Megan here. And I just want to let you know that we're going to be taking the week off so that I can celebrate Christmas with my family and Amy can celebrate Hanukkah with hers. But we're releasing a special episode. This episode was selected by patrons some time ago, and we're making it available to you because of how many of you wrote in requesting that we cover this case. We hope you enjoy and we'll see you next week when we return on Women in Crime. We hope you and your family and friends have a happy and safe new year. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Four girls were killed in an Austin yogurt shop in a horrific crime in 1991, but more than 30 years later, this case remains open. What new developments are there in the investigation, and is it still possible to solve this brutal crime? This is the Yogurt Shop Murders story. Hi, Amy. Hi, Megan. So 1991 was 30 years ago. Right? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, no, I just wanted, this is one of those cold case episodes. Listen, I know it's nothing to laugh about because this is a very serious crime, but it makes me feel a little bit old. Well, we are old, um, but no, uh, it's (laughs) definitely not something to laugh about. And you know what? I, um, this one was selected. I don't know if you remember this is a patron episode. I love our patron episodes because I love that we get to talk about them after. Yes. And this is going to be one also, Amy, where I think we're going to have different theories. Oh, good. I can't wait. I know this case. I have yet to do a deep dive into it, so... 
Well, the patrons selected it. Remember we sent them a poll? Yes. And we're doing that for now on. I love that. I know. I know. They, they have great ideas too. Do you but- know, oh, sorry. Do you know almost 300 people responded? I thought that was so cool. I think that's great. Because in the past, remember, like we did it maybe last year when we first started Patreon and people didn't really vote, but now people are into it. It's probably because we didn't know how to post a poll. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> it's probably user error. <laughs> Always. <laughs> so I think that we've also had, I've had a lot of other listeners write in about this one. You know, I check the emails frequently and this is one that people wanted to hear. And this is, you know, a a mystery still. And this case needs to be solved. So perhaps we can help spread more awareness. And you never know who might know something about this crime, which took place on December 6th, 1991. At 11.27 p.m. on that fateful evening, the police received a call about a fire at an I can't believe it's yogurt in Austin, Texas, located close to a strip mall. Do you know I can't believe it's yogurt? Yeah, it's kind of like the country's best yogurt, TCBY. Remember that? I, I wasn't really? ever a yogurt person. Oh, yes, I do remember TCBY. Okay. So I feel like it was probably a franchise similar to that. Right, but they just don't have them here, correct? That's when I had asked my friend Michelle, because yeah. she's from Texas. She's like, of course I know that. How, how could you not? I'm like, I don't think we have any up I'm here. I'm not sure that we did. Yeah. Okay. So when the police arrived, they were shocked to find out that not only was there a fire, but there were four fatalities. And the scene told a much more sinister version of events than just an accidental fire, because I think that's what they were thinking at first. But who were the four people who lost their lives? Let's discuss them first, because these are the victims, and I want everyone to be familiar with who these girls are. This case is always referred to or often referred to as the yogurt shop murders and the four girls, but they were individuals and they were people. So briefly, let me tell you about them. Amy was the youngest of the victims at just age 13. She came from a ranching family and loved the outdoors, fishing and horse racing, but she loved almost all animals, and she dreamed of owning a horse ranch herself one day. This is Texas, the area, so you're going to find that most of these girls were into ranching and showing animals, which I think is so interesting. And there's video, too. You can see some of the girls at competitions because they would show their, their animals. Sarah was just 15 years old. She had an older sister, Jennifer, who was also one of the victims here. And I'll tell you about her next. But obviously, you realize the the double tragedy here is that these two are sisters. Sarah reportedly loved sports, the outdoors, and many other school activities, such as cheering. She was a high achiever and a very active student, and she loved to show sheep at local competitions. That's what I said. All the girls like to show animals. This is like the Texas lifestyle. I love it. It's Mm -hmm. like ranching and, you know, rodeos Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Sarah's older sister, Jennifer, was 17 years old, and she was very close with her younger sister and her family. She was also very athletic and socially active in school and outside. She also intended to go into a career in rodeo racing someday. Didn't even know that was a thing. Rodeo racing? That, that, you know, I knew that was a thing for sure. I know, like, you know, a little bit about rodeo lifestyle, but it was interesting. I hadn't thought about... In the videos, they're showing like one girl was showing her pet pig. I'm like, oh, you show pet pigs? Like, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't kind of realize. I know I, it was. Um, the one who showed her pet pig, I think, was Eliza. So Eliza Thomas was 17 years old as well and grew up with her parents who divorced. But, you know, they remained close. And her younger sister, Eliza, loved dancing. I'm sorry. Her younger sister was not one of the victims. So no, her younger gotcha. sister was sorry. not. Okay. No. You know, Amy, it's a good question, though, because I watched a documentary on this. And while her younger sister wasn't a direct victim, the impact that this had on her life, I believe her name was Sonora. The impact was like long term devastation. It was it really it really caused, you know, the collateral consequences to her and her family were, were so severe. That's a beautiful name. I'm not sure I ever heard it. No, me neither. Right. Yeah. 
Um, and she's a lovely person. And when she talked about how close her, you know, she was with her sister and the impact this had on her, you couldn't help but really feel for her. Eliza loved dancing, and she dreamed of becoming a model when she got older. And just like the other girls, she loved animals and was a part of the Future Farmers of America. Have you ever heard of the Future Farmers of America? I have not. No. I had it either. You know why? Because we grew up on Long Island. Yeah. I mean, that's just not something. It's a far cry from the farm. Yeah, I just don't think that that's. I know, oh, actually, a far cry from the ranch, I guess. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she worked at the yogurt shop to help pay for her modeling portfolio. And if I recall, she had just gotten her first portfolio pictures taken. And she also loved to show her pet hog in competitions. So, by all accounts, these were four lovely, active, promising, and aspirational young women. I don't know if Eliza and Jennifer were quite white friends. They worked together, but the other two, Sarah and her friend Amy, they were actually, they were friends who came to the store. Let me let me set the scenario so mm-hmm. it's maybe a little bit less confusing. Eliza and Jennifer were closing up the store that night, but Jennifer's sister, Sarah, and her friend Amy met the girls. Gotcha. Presumably to go home with them because Jennifer had a car and they could give them a ride. They had been shopping. Remember I said it was a strip mall? Yeah. So they'd just been shopping and her mother had said, you know, just give the girls a ride home, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Now, the scene of the yogurt shop told a story of the events that happened that evening, and investigators basically surmised the following. This is what happened. When Eliza and Jennifer were cleaning up the yogurt shop, and Sarah and Amy had been there, some number of unidentified suspects entered the yogurt shop. Right now, we don't know that number. Took money from the registers, forced the girls in the back, tied them up, sexually assaulted at least one and likely two, then shot them to death and set the yogurt shop on fire. This is not just a robbery by any stretch, though, um, Amy. And I, I think that you will probably agree in the end, while a robbery was part of it, it was not the primary motivation of the crimes. Austin police officers arrived just after midnight after an officer called in the fire. And when they arrived is when they discovered the bodies of the four girls who had been stacked on top of each other. Hmm. With the exception of Amy, She was uh, further away, you know, maybe, I don't remember the exact footage, maybe 20 feet. So it definitely appeared that she was trying to make a getaway for Mm it. I'm not sure what the stacking is. I think probably stacking was just practical, like stacking them for like fire purposes, maybe. It's just, it's a bizarre thing. I read someone, like I had looked into things Mm -hmm. and like someone said, they were stacked during a sexual assault. And like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I also heard you could stack bodies to incapacitate them. Meaning, uh, you know, like if you don't have rope or something to tie them up because someone on the bottom can't move if the other girls are on top of them. Right. But why wouldn't the top girl just move it? You know, I don't know. It just doesn't make perfect sense. It doesn't make perfect sense. I feel like it was an after thing. I mean, it's also a way to, that, to disregard their lives, like just throw them like trash. Oh, it's, uh, it's awful. It's awful. You know, yeah. I don't think the perpetrators of this crime had any regard for these girls' lives. No, clearly not. And from that moment, the invest- the investigation began to try to find out, you know, who would do this to these young girls? I think I know the answer to this, but no surveillance. Oh, I was like, I thought you were saying you knew the answer. Like, No, no. I mean, the answer to this question that will be forthcoming. There was no surveillance no. available? No, there's no surveillance there. Was it there. broken or they just didn't have any? Other? There was no surveillance in there. Mm. No cameras. I guess we're talking early 90s because I don't think you could go anywhere today without there being a camera. Well, I don't know. We just covered a case where you were talking about someone in a city park and there were no cameras. Yeah, but I'm thinking more like a, a store. I feel like every store has a camera these days. And they did have cameras, but they were just broken. Yeah, that's true. Um, That's happened in a lot of cases, don't you think, where the cameras were there, but they just didn't work? I think they just kept them up as like a deterrent. Yep. Mm -hmm. You can just look. Yeah. Yeah. So the local police were working with state police, but they also brought in federal 
federal agencies to help on this one, specifically the FBI and the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Because this crime was nothing like they had ever seen before, and I think local police sought direction and possibly profiling assistance from federal law enforcement. They also had firearms involved, so that might explain, you know, why there was an ATF also to mm-hmm. alcohol, tobacco, firearms. Former Austin homicide detective John Jones began as the lead investigator on this case. And you'll see him in the documentaries on this case, Amy. And it's obvious what a huge impact these crimes had on him and how connected he was to this case. He had a shirt on that night. It was a green shirt, I believe. And he vowed to never put that shirt back on until he solved the case, like to like memorialize Hmm. it. And the shirt still hangs in his closet. And he says he still hopes that he's going to put it on someday. Police were able to form a few initial conclusions, one of which was that there were two types of firearms used. So what does that tell you, Amy? At least two offenders? Exactly. Most likely. Most likely. Most likely. And I put, it's funny, Can't I put, say for sure. Nope. I put that in my, which indicated at least two killers or possibly one killer with two guns, which seems probably unlikely. I also don't think one, I think if you had four, one of them would have gotten away or something. I absolutely think so too. They already surmise that there's at least two offenders. And again, they also believed, as you said, that it would be highly unlikely with four and one offender, like something might've gone like wrong. Like you said, if you have a gun, like shut up or I'm going to shoot, the girls are going to shut up. But yeah. if you have four of them, them, there's one there's going to be a point where the perpetrator's back is turned and one could do something i would expect it, it might be there i don't know been some evidence yeah. of that they spoke to some witnesses as well who had been in the yogurt shop very close to the closing when the girls appeared to be cleaning up and judging by the locked door inside the police were quite certain the crime occurred after closing hours the door was locked from the inside interesting so it had to be someone they knew or someone who was already in the yogurt shop so I don't know if you... Oh, because they could have locked the door. The perpetrator could have locked the door. Well, the perpetrator could have, or I don't know if you used to waitress or work at a place when you close up, even if there's some customers there and you don't want new people to come in, you'll lock the door. Gotcha. Yep. You lock someone in with you, but it's also a way that, so you don't have people constantly coming Mm -hmm. in. So it's possible that by the timeline though here, I mean, it's certainly possible the perpetrators locked the door, but by the timeline, it seems like the girls did just while they were closing Mm -hmm. up. The task force began tracking down leads while the city grieved the loss of these four girls and the community was in shock as well, fearing for the safety of their children. But it would not be long at all before the police had their first suspect in the case. And this was a local young man by the name of Maurice Pierce. Pierce, just 15 years old, was arrested because he was caught carrying a similar gun to one of the weapons used in the murders. And he was at the strip mall near the yogurt shop just a few days after the murders. So they're saying he's a young offender. He's by the yogurt shop. He's... Did um, he have a criminal history? He had some interface with law enforcement. Did he know any of the girls? No, he did not. I think they're looking for anyone here too. And I think the fact that he was in the area and had a similar weapon. But in the area days later, you said. Yeah, but he's familiar with the area. So maybe he's a local guy, Mm -hmm. you know. Okay. Maurice spoke to the police without a lawyer. And very quickly, he told him that he was involved in the crime and that three of his friends were also involved. He said he drove the getaway car. Oh, so case closed. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's still open 30 years later. No, the police were like, okay, but they felt like he wasn't that reliable. So they wired him to see if he could get the other boys to talk about the crime. And when he was talking about it with these other boys, it seemed obvious that they had like none of them had any clue. Is it possible that they thought he was bugged? It's definitely possible. But they're also kids. They were yeah. young. And I don't know that all three that of them. they're savvy enough to. 
so and I mean, what happened was, uh, you know, when they brought, you know, the boys in, they denied any involvement. It seemed at that time his details didn't match. It seemed like a false confession to police at the time. Investigators looked into many other leads, including one woman in particular. They looked at her because she had a lot of ties to this group of locals who were into like the supernatural, the va- like vampires and the occult. And this woman's name kept coming up, according to Jones, the police detective. Tips kept coming in like, you should really look at this woman. Because you know what it sounds like to me? West Memphis 3? Yes. Yeah, of course it does. And the other example you gave of the boy who was implicating the other kids, that reminded me of Central Park 5. Right. Or also Ryan Ferguson. Yeah. Right? Yep. And his friend, I mean, it implicated him. Yeah. I mean, we haven't seen this crime before, but we've seen a lot of these aspects at play before. Mm-hmm. I definitely think so. They were able to get a search warrant for this woman's home, mm-hmm. which seems like a little bit of a stretch just by tips. But, you know... They, they searched the house and it produced some very odd things like animal bones, mm. rat bones, fake like gore. None of it was evidence of a crime, but really it just looked like a fascination with like a deep, dark kind of underworld. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But police got another tip that seemed promising after this letdown. They had constructed a sketch of someone who was supposedly sitting outside of the yogurt shop, according to an eyewitness. And this is the first of a few eyewitnesses we'll discuss. And it turns out that the sketch looked a lot like a suspect in another case where a young woman was sexually assaulted and survived, but there were three perpetrators. So the police were thinking, um, okay, well, we have a sketch. We have multiple perpetrators. And this I saw the sketches in this Mm -hmm. case, and they were very similar. Mm -hmm. So I understood they thought this was a promising lead. And also there was a tip that these men had fled to Mexico. Yeah. So it was looking pretty good. But they also were being held in Mexico. The Mexican government arrested them and interrogated them and then said that they confessed. It was like, yeah, case closed. But of course, they were like, well, American, you know, American investigators wanted to interrogate them again because they had all the details of the crime. Mm -hmm. And they said that none of the details matched. They were all basically mistaken details, you mm. know, so from all of the men. So now we're talking two false confessions. Well, if, depending on what you think, yeah. Well, two potential false they, confessions. I mean, what they said was that they, when they questioned the men, the confessions were unreliable. The evidence just wasn't solid. I have to say, though, also kudos to them because you, we see a lot of times in this case where hey, this one guy looked like a guy that could have possibly been around this at the time and you got three confessions. A lot of police would have just pushed forward with this information. So I think it's good that they were looking at the confessions as possibly being unreliable. And over the years, several people who did not commit this crime confessed, including a young couple and a serial killer. We've seen this before in Benet Ramsey and Jean Benet Ramsey case, right? Oh, yeah. How many people have confessed to that crime? A lot of people have confessed. And I mean, why do people confess? Because they want the notoriety, they're bored, they have some mental illness. Maybe they come to believe they actually may have done something. Serial killers tend to over-confess a lot. So I'm not surprised to hear this. They tend to confess to crimes they haven't committed. And there's any number of reasons, including possible attention, extending the length of their, you know, death row Uh or, you know, there are any number of reasons. So Yes, many false confessions over the year, which I think was very frustrating for law enforcement and for their families. After working on this case for over six years, Detective Jones moved on, deciding it was time for a pair of fresh eyes. And not long after, in October 1999, four men were arrested for the murders after almost nine years of investigating. 
But were they the right men? And who were these men? Well, you know one of them from earlier, and that was Maurice Pierce. Remember that Hmm. 15-year-old who was arrested with the gun? Yes. Why did he resurface? Well, it's not that he resurfaced. It's that they had new investigators on the case who decided that was a good, solid old lead, and the old team should have followed up with that. Gotcha. They didn't think that it was thorough enough. Yes and no. I don't know they were criticizing, but they just thought they got it wrong. Were the other three men the same ones that Maurice had implicated previously to? Yes. Okay. Okay. So this is Maurice Pierce along with Forrest Welburn, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen. They were all original suspects and all were arrested. But what evidence did they have now that they didn't have then? Well, they had two new confessions from Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen, who said that they were only intending a robbery, but things got out of control. Springsteen said that he shot and raped one of the girls during his confession, but he later said that his confession was coerced. Forrest Wellborn said he had nothing to do with the murders. He was never there, and he never changed his story, never changed his position. Did the other men implicate Forrest? I don't know the specifics. I don't believe so, to be Mm -hmm. honest. I think, like, if they did, it was more of a, yeah, he was there, but they were really talking about the actions that they Mm -hmm. took. Okay. But would the case go to trial for all these men with virtually no evidence? Well, charges were later dropped um, against Maurice Pierce, the original 15-year-old who made the Mm -hmm. accusation. And Wellborn was not indicted because there was no evidence to suggest he was involved. But the case proceeded against Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen. Based on their confession? Based on their confession. Didn't Pierce confess, though? Pierce had confessed in the first Oh, but not the second time around. Not the second time around. He maintained his innocence that time, and they just didn't feel that they had a strong enough confession the first time around. Gotcha. They also thought that these two were the ringleaders. Pierce had confessed, but they thought that he was the getaway driver. Gotcha. So they were more concerned. So what happened? Well, the trial against them was held separately. Springsteen's trial was held first in 2001. They did not testify, but their confessions were a big centerpiece of the trial. Well, that's all they had. Yeah. And they were played at trial. Keep that in mind. After just three weeks, the jury found Springsteen guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to death. How did I not know this? I didn't know this either. I knew this case, but I didn't know the extent. I thought it was just unsolved. I never knew all these other things happened. I didn't know this either. Okay, Scott's trial was held next in 2002, following year. And while the jury found him guilty, Scott was sentenced to life in prison rather than death. Okay, so you have case closed, right? Well, I guess not. Not exactly. In 2006 and 2007, the court overturned the convictions, saying that their constitutional rights to confront their accusers were violated because their confessions were played, but they couldn't question each other. They couldn't question their accusers. You understand? Interesting. Yes. yes. Look, they played the, you know, the confessions. But because they didn't take the stand, there was no ability to confront their accusers. Just trying to think, like, haven't other cases shown confessions before? Definitely. I don't know. It's because in this case, the confessions were pointed at each other. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it also, it's so case specific, right? That there's nuances that could have led to that decision. But yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, it works for their... So they got a new trial? Both of these guys? Hold that thought. Okay. okay. Another big development. In 2008, law enforcement found a partial DNA swab on one of the sisters, Sarah or Jennifer, and they used YSTR testing. And that's a method for tracing paternal lineage Mm. to try to narrow down the suspect list. But the sample had just 16 markers, so there could be millions of people in that profile. For point of reference, I'll tell you, Cece Moore, you know who she Mm -hmm. is, a genealogist? Of course, you know, you covered Barbara Ray Venter. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
She said that they usually use a minimum of, I believe it was like 67 markers. So this is useless, this DNA. Not exactly. It's not useless, but it's not a slam dunk DNA case. It's a weaker sample. And what came out of this test, though, because you asked about these other guys, was that the DNA didn't match any of those four. That doesn't mean that they weren't there. It doesn't mean that they weren't there, but wouldn't the DNA that they got match one of them if they were involved in the crime on the girls? Well, just to play devil's advocate, you could say there was a fifth offender. Well, that's what happened. Do you uh, know that? The pros- no. That's what happened. Oh. The prosecutor said- I just heard it happen in so many cases. In Central Park 5 case, that happened too, because they found the DNA of the actual perpetrator. Mm-hmm. They just said- Oh, that just means there was a sixth person. That's exactly what the prosecutor said. She said there must be a fifth person. I've heard this so many times. I think that's illogical. How long can five perpetrators keep a secret? This is 30 years. Not one of them would have said anything. And all these, if all of these men confess, why would they not throw the other one under the bus? Why would they be protecting this one person? It doesn't make, it makes no it sense. It doesn't make any sense. But the, the charges, you had asked, were mm-hmm. dropped against Springsteen and Scott Although it doesn't mean that they can't be tried again. But to this date, they have not been tried so again. To this date, they have not. Okay. Are they considered, so they're considered wrongfully convicted? No, not wrongful convictions. Their constitutional rights were violated, so they won oh, on an appeal. procedural. Yeah, it, okay. they won on an appeal. Well, no, so it's procedural innocence, not actual innocence. Yeah. Okay. But some people would say that's considered an exoneration in a way. Mm, yeah, I guess some people would say that. I, I, I don't think that's the definition that we should be using, but some people say procedural error Okay. Charges dropped would fall under that category. Okay. But where does this leave the case now, Amy? And are there other suspects? The answer is yes, but it's a complicated yes. More complicated than it's been thus far? I know, it sounds. <laughs> you see, there were two other suspects in this case whose identities remain unknown. Two men wearing fatigue color jackets were seen inside the yogurt shop the evening of the crime. Daryl Croft, a former military member, was one of those eyewitnesses who described the men for law enforcement. According to Croft, they were described as white males in their 20s, one being shorter with sandier hair and the other being much taller with dark hair. And Daryl Croft had a bad feeling about those young men, one of whom like went into a back room reportedly to use a bathroom. So he hung around for a couple minutes, but he eventually left. And then another couple came in at 1042 Mm -hmm. and they were going to take their yogurt to go, I think, but decided to sit down and eat it. I mean, taking yogurt to go is rough. You know, it doesn't always make (laughs) it. So they sat down and they ate their yogurt. And they also described seeing two males with hoodie jackets, but they couldn't really see their faces because they said it looked like they were pulling their hoods over. And were they fatigued? um, Army fatigue? Is that what you said? They they described him in dark clothing. Okay, so... It seems like there's a consistency. The couple said they thought they were younger, like they mm-hmm. possibly were kids, but Daryl Croft said 20s or 30s. They were young men. You, we yeah. know eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. It's, this is not a perfect science. But we have three people who definitely saw two men, one of them acting a little weird going in the back room and yeah. sitting in the yoga shop right before the girls were closing. And all they had, I believe, was a Sprite. I think it's safe to say that these men had something to do with the crime. Well, it's let's just, who are they? So the witnesses said they were acting oddly and, and they said they it seemed like they were trying not to leave the store even though they were just sipping on like a soda. But none were able to provide enough information for a sketch and that was part of the problem. They couldn't sketch. Even though Daryl said he kind of got a look, he couldn't do the exact, it's very hard to provide information for a sketch. Law enforcement were really frustrated, but in 2017, police came up with a match to that YSTR DNA that they had obtained years earlier. But while they got a match, they couldn't get a name. 
what happened, apparently, even though this was a public DNA database, the sample had been submitted by the FBI anonymously, and they said that they couldn't release the name due to privacy issues. It, it was very weird. This seemed to go on for this almost like a battle between the agencies mm-hmm. for a couple of years. But ultimately, the FBI later agreed to work with the Austin Police Department to investigate the DNA further. But at first, they didn't want to release any information. I thought the FBI was part of the investigation. They were part of the investigation. Now, I don't know if this is because I'm sure there are privacy issues from what they can. But in general, you can usually share that information with other law enforcement agencies. I can also say that sometimes, and I don't mean this is a knock at like the FBI in general, but like when I worked in federal probation, the FBI officers were the... The least ones to be like to share their information. I found that other agencies were a little bit more forthcoming Mm -hmm. with information. That's just anecdotally. I can't really speculate. It was probably really a privacy issue here. But they did do more advanced testing, which resulted in 25 markers because, you know, as as DNA evolves. But the um, additional markers did not match the original sample. So the original person, the suspect that they had, no longer considered a match. You mean the anonymous? Correct. So the the FBI basically told them that, you know, this donor was excluded. So the police were back to square one. This also really quickly, Amy, this brings me to the question of privacy because this issue comes up a lot with um, genetic genealogy. Mm-hmm. Should law enforcement be able to use DNA submitted by private citizens to prosecute crimes? <laughs> this has come up in so many cases because you see how popular these sites are like Ancestry.com. And this was in Bear Brook. Remember yeah. that podcast? And yeah. then when we covered the Barbara Ray case, it's really difficult because historically when you opted into one of these services, you didn't know that it could be used by right. law enforcement. But right. I believe because of lawsuits, now there is a disclaimer. And I don't think they're all willing to provide this information yeah. to law enforcement. But rem- remember a case we just covered very recently. Which one? That the Sherry Papini update. If it wasn't for familial DNA, we wouldn't know what happened. Because remember, they had this unknown DNA, and then six years later, it hit on a match in CODIS, and it ended up being a family member of the person's DNA. This is an extremely useful tool for law enforcement. But then you always have to weigh civil liberties with public safety. And this this is when it gets tricky, because we all have a right to privacy. Mm Mm-hmm. I have mixed feelings about this as well. I see it as a useful tool, but I'm really concerned about privacy. It's a slippery slope. It's a very slippery slope. Nonetheless, that's where we're at at the case right now. And before we discuss, though, some final conclusions, I want to briefly discuss false confessions as this was one of the most significant problems with solving this crime and probably hampered, you know, solving the crime as well. And I know we've talked about false confessions before. It makes me wonder what kind of interrogation tactics were used. Totally. Because if you have that many false confessions in one case... Is that coincidence or? One of the police officers involved in, I don't remember in which interrogation of which suspect was later fired for very, very coercive interrogations that also led to wrongful information. Yeah. So it's one of the policy implications Mm -hmm. here. False confessions are the second leading cause of wrongful conviction. Second only, as you know, to eyewitness errors. Maurice was coerced into his false confession, producing four suspects who were wrongfully implicated. Clips of the confessions from the other suspects definitely show the coercive tactics used by the police. And these boys were young. Do they have lawyers present? Nope. Mm. Scared and susceptible to the influence of authorities. They then tricked them using the false confessions against Uh, each other, which is something that we've talked about before. Um, And I'm just going to quickly say there are a number of reasons why people falsely confess. Amy, what are just a couple of reasons? Well, sometimes people start to believe they actually did something and internalize false confession. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they just confess to get out of an awful situation. If Mm -hmm. they're being 
you know, tortured or terrorized in the interrogation room, they'll say whatever they can to get out of that situation. Sometimes they just want attention. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're trying to protect someone else. I always think of how long, and I'm not even, this is not a joke, but mm-hmm. it kind of is, like how long could you go without food for? Well, like, People confess because they're start, like hungry. Well, hungry, thirsty, they yeah. need a cigarette break, they need a yeah. bathroom break, yeah. they miss their children, they yeah. miss their loved ones. So how do we avoid these false confessions? I mean, there's a, a number of things we can do. For me, primary is I don't believe the police should be allowed to lie to suspects. This, this is a tricky one because lying to suspects will often elicit true confessions as well. So it, I don't like having, it. using the interrogation technique of lying produces many positive, true positive leads, but at the expense of- I was going to say at the expense of, but wouldn't you rather see an innocent or a guilty course. person go free than an in a, you know, Absolutely. innocent person? Absolutely. But again, just, you know, I like to play devil's advocate. If I were an investigator, I would say, you know, I need this tool. But I, okay. I agree. And I, you know, there are states that say you can't lie about certain things. And I like so, that. I want some yeah. limitations on it. I, they don't lie in um, England. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the UK, they're not allowed to lie. I, I mean, I kind of think if we're not allowed to lie to the police, why can the police lie to us? Hey, fair point. And, you know, long interrogations produce false confessions. Yelling at suspects produces false confessions because while it's not physical coercion, it's intimidation and scare tactics. But scare tactics also produce true confessions. Yes, I understand that. There are any number of factors that contribute to false confessions, and they're well established in the field. But tunnel vision is also very much at play here, and this is a harder issue to contend with. It's possible, though, and we have many opportunities to reform interrogations still. And mm-hmm. I really hope to see interrogations. I hope to see some changes made to the policy that will lessen the possibility of wrongful convictions. And just to add to that, one of the biggest policy suggestions is recording interrogations. Yes. But that means recording the whole thing, not recording certain parts that you choose to record. They should always be recorded. Because like anything else, it's a deterrent against bad behavior. Yes. And then you don't have to worry about it. It protects the officers. It protects the investigators as well as the suspect. Because it does. And it it protects the investigators against false claims of coercion. I absolutely agree. Okay. Now that we've covered this, I just want to get to our final conclusions here. I thought a lot about this. Theory-wise, I believe that there are two offenders, and I think it's the ones specifically who were seen in the yogurt shop by the eyewitnesses. I don't believe that there are more than two offenders because I don't think there was any viable explanation for it. And I also believe, as I've said multiple times before, it's harder to keep a secret. It's hard with two, much harder with three, nearly impossible with four. Yeah. I believe the two are likely career criminals, and they either met in some type of punishment setting or their relatives. You know what it's making me think of? What? A pettit family. How the two men met in a uh, halfway house. That's right. And then they committed this awful violent crime, which was not unlike this one. The women were sexually assaulted and the house was set on fire. Yes. Actually, very similar. Oh, my God. You know, I didn't even realize that. I didn't put that together. I didn't until just now. This conflicts, though, with the idea that most career criminals are arrested at some point and then there would be DNA on file. Or they're dead. There are any number of explanations for why there aren't, but I don't believe this was their first crime or their last crime. They're just lucky enough right now to have DNA. There have been other theories that a serial killer is responsible for this Mm-mm. crime. And I I think there's a duo, like I said, and I actually think of cousins like Ken Bianchi and Angelo mm-hmm. Buono, which is why I suggest family members. They're tight. so they, They're not going to tell on each other. Exactly. The crime scene evidence also tells me something about the offenders. They were smart. They weren't novices. They're organized. They brought an accelerant to burn down the place. They knew the place also. I think they were locals or at least had stayed there for some time because they knew the store routines and they knew that the girls would be there alone that night. And I'd bet that the yogurt shop had some male employees too, but these two didn't go on an evening with males working. 
So they had some idea of what was going they on. They probably expected just the two girls and it was almost a bonus for them to have the additional two. I think that's exactly right. They knew that it, it was going to be two girls at this time is what I really think. Um, so that indicates some level of having familiarity with the area. And very much premeditated. I think so. Mm -hmm. Finally, I believe those two were the real perpetrators and I think they can still be located. So I, I think there's still reason to be hopeful. Um, it just takes one slip of the tongue, one person who wants to help, one piece of DNA, and the murder of these four girls can be solved. What do you think, Amy? Any any thoughts or differences? Not unlike you, I think it is likely those two men that were seen mm -hmm. in the yogurt shop. Okay. I think it's possible there was a third and a fourth if there was a back door. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Do they have cell phones then? Probably not. No. Okay. I was going to say, then the perpetrators would like call the other perps and say like, okay, all clear, come on in. Remember the one went to the bathroom? Yes. You know, he was probably looking around to see maybe if there's anyone else there. Oh, yes. Or if there's any cameras. So I do believe it was very much premeditated. I think they expected two girls. Yep. I think they maybe panicked when they realized it was four, but they were already similar to the Pettit family case. They were already ramped up. Right. Nothing was going to stop them at this point. Exactly. And that's what they were going to do. And unfortunately, now there's four girls. The fact that it, so it sounds like they were young. Mm -hmm. So it, it strikes me that they're able to get away with it because. Well, that's I, why I said they had to be some level organized and had. Yeah. This is not their first crime. Yeah, I think one, if not two, are deceased because I think, as you said, this was definitely not their last, their first or last. Right. I would be surprised if they were not incarcerated at some point in which their DNA would be on file. Right. It doesn't sound like they were the kind of people that were savvy enough to, you know, then get on a plane if they were young guys, you know. Not savvy enough, but smart enough at the crime scene. Yeah. Smart enough to probably look out. Smart enough to, you know, burn the evidence. Smart. Yeah. I think the thing I worry about in cases like this that have gone cold for so long mm -hmm. is that we'll never know because if they took it to the grave with them. Yep. That's very true. I still think the... I mean, the big key will be the DNA, but it still is possible. And we really, really, really hope that this case is solved. It's such a tragedy. And I, I actually did not know half of that. So thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you to our patrons for suggesting it. Megan, you know, I shy away from cases that I feel have been overcovered. Yes. But look how much we've learned that we didn't know about this. So. I thought the same exact thing. And we really look forward to discussing it with our patrons at our next AMA. We'll see you there. Yeah. Thank you so much. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include an episode of 48 Hours, an episode of Cold Case Detective, The New York Post, and GoSanAngelo.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.